year is off to a good start and you have already accomplished all of your resolutions. So everything is done and set as of today. So open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be. When, uh, when Bethany and I got married over 15 years ago, which I know to some of you is not very long at all, but um, when we got married over 15 years ago, uh, we, we filled out, as most couples do, a registry for wedding gifts. You know, um, you, it seems kind of self-centered, but at the same time, you want to let people know, if they're going to buy you a gift, you want to let them know what, you'd, what you would like in your new house and your apartment. You don't want to get, you know, 15 coffee makers and 25 toasters. Um, we're actually still using the same toaster that my brother gave us, which was not on our registry when we got married. We're still using it today, used it this morning. So what we did was we went to three or four different stores and, you know, took the little scanner gun and scanned things and put them in our registry. And then people knew what we would like to have and they bought us those gifts. Well, one of the things that most couples register for is a set of very nice silverware, dinnerware called China. I'm sure most of you have a set of china. They're extra special plates and forks and knives and goblets. You can tell they're really fancy if they're called goblets, you know. <laughs> and uh, you, you store those away in your house and you bring them out to use them on special occasions. You don't use them every night, but you use them on birthdays or Thanksgiving or, or Christmas. I'm sure some of you have china in your house. Maybe you received it as a gift at your wedding. Maybe some of you have your parents' china, grandparents' china that was passed down to you. It's expensive and it's, it's nice. Now, if you, if you have some china in your house or you at least know someone who does, then you understand the biblical concept of holiness. I mean, that's essentially what holiness is. It's something that has been set aside for a particular use. You don't use the goblets every night for dinner. You set them aside and you use them at a particular time for a particular purpose. To be holy is to be kept separate, distinct, and used for a particular purpose. To be holy means to be used for God's purposes, for his uses. And that's one of the major messages of Ephesians chapter 4 through Ephesians chapter 6 is that you and I have been saved, we've been called into holiness. We have been set apart and kept distinct for God's purposes and his uses. To be separate from the culture is to be holy. To be distinct from the world around us for God's purposes is to be holy. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32, that you and I are to walk in this distinctness, in this separateness, in this holiness. And he explains to us in this passage what that looks like in some detail. So if you're not there, open up to Ephesians 4. We started studying this last week, and we will finish it up this Sunday. 
by looking at verses 25 to 32, which finish up what we started last week in verses 17 to 24. But in this passage, we're looking at three features of a walk of holiness for those who are in Christ. Of course, this connects back to chapters 1 to 3 as the foundation for this walk. That's the the doctrinal or the theological foundation for this lifestyle that we're seeing here. And this lifestyle is to be one of unity in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4. And then in verses 17 to 32, it's to be a lifestyle, a walk of holiness. So three features of a walk of holiness, and we saw first last week that you, to have a walk of holiness, have to disown a worldly lifestyle. Now, to be worldly basically just means that you think like the culture around you, the world around you. You you want the same things as the unbelieving masses around you. You act in the same way from day to day as unbelievers do around you. It means that you sort of flow along in the stream of the world, the unbelieving masses, and you're pretty indistinguishable from them. You look like they do. You want like they do. You act like they do. And Paul tells us that if if we've been called as God's children, then you and I can't continue to walk in that way. Look at verses 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity." Not a very flattering lifestyle, and certainly not a lifestyle that is appropriate for someone who's been called out of darkness and into light by God. And so if we've been set apart for God's use, then that means we need to be personally pursuing Jesus Christ and personally devoted to him. And that's the second feature of a walk of holiness. You can't just shut down the old lifestyle. There has to be a new lifestyle that develops. And you devote yourself to Christ. Look at verse 20, verses 20 and 21. But that, what he just described in verses 17 and 19, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. If you've been instructed in Jesus, then you know you can't look like verses 17 to 19. Instead, there are three major pieces of your new walk, three things that happen to you, and those are found in verses 22 to 24. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." You're to recognize that you have been saved, you've been redeemed, you have put off the old self, you've died to your old way of life, and you have put on the new self, which is supposed to look like the Lord Jesus Christ, to resemble the character of God. And then how do you actually live out that reality that you have died and have risen with Christ and now are to look like him? Verse 23 tells us to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Our inner self, our thinking, our desires have to be constantly be made new. We think differently. We want differently. 
We look like Christ now in our desires and our thinking. And so those three pieces, put off, renew, put on, those are like the major contours of this new life in Christ. Those are the general principles. We're constantly putting to death the old way of life that pops up. We're trying to renew our minds with biblical truth, and then we're trying to walk in a new way of living. That's the structure of our lives. But that's kind of a, an overall principle. It's, it's sort of like deciding as a family that you're going to buy a house. Well, that's a great thing to decide, but then you have to go and say, okay, what are the specifics of this? What's our price range? Can we get a loan or not? Do we need a loan? How many bedrooms do we want? What area do we want to live in? You have to actually go and you have to think about the specifics and work out the details. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do in verses 25 to 32. He's going to say, look, you've you've seen the big picture, put off, renew, put on, and now I'm going to show you exactly what this looks like in daily life. And that's the third feature of our walk of holiness. It's to displace the old habits with new. The old way of living has to go away, and the new way of living needs to become normal and routine for us. And so you can see in verse 25, if you look there, he begins with the word, therefore, right? So this is based on what you've seen, the principles that you just saw, particularly in verses 22 to 24. So he's going to take those principles of putting off, renewing, and putting on, and he's going to work those out in some very, very practical examples for daily life. And so in these verses, 25 to 32, you're going to see five different areas where your walk is supposed to look differently, where your new life in Christ impacts your daily lifestyle and the things that you want and the things that you do. And in each of those five areas, there's going to be three parts to them. All right, I hope this isn't getting too confusing. All right, so five areas. And each of those, it's very well structured. Paul's going to give you three parts. And the three parts correspond to put off, renew, put on. So he's explaining to you what it actually means to put off, renew, and put on. So each one is going to have a prohibition. He's going to tell you, you have to stop doing this. You have to stop living like this. That's the put off section. And then he's going to give you a positive command. Now here's what you do. Here's the new way of life. This is the put on portion. And then in each of these areas, he's going to give us a a theological basis for the change. He's going to give you a motivational basis for this. He's not just telling you, look, I need you to act differently. He's actually going to tell you, here's why I want you to act differently. Here's the reality of your life in Christ that has has changed, and so now you have to change along with it. And this is one of the interesting things about the New Testament. Lots of commands in the New Testament are commands that you can find elsewhere in the ancient world. You can see people saying, love other people, you know, um, be kind to other people. But what the New Testament does is it takes these commands, this way of living, and it gives you a motivational basis for them that's rooted in God and his character, and it's rooted in the work of Christ. And so here's why you need to live in this way, and you'll see that very clearly in this passage. And so this theological basis that you're going to see for each of these changes, this is what we have to renew our minds with. 
This is what you have to think about and dwell on and meditate on and deduct from this truth to your daily life. That's what he's doing here. Now, these five areas that he's going to discuss, these aren't exhaustive, right? So, like, if you get these five things, you haven't solved Christian living. <laughs> you haven't automatically become perfectly holy. These are, these are five examples. This is the type of thing that you should be doing. But I'll tell you, if you were to actually get pretty close on these, it would be an amazing change in your life and in my life for that to happen be quite a, a resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ if you were to consistently make these new habits in your life. So let's look at the first one in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, right? So here's the put off part of this. Last week, we saw in verses 17 to 19, we saw worldly lifestyle. And that worldly lifestyle was characterized by futility, darkness of understanding, Ignorance, hardness of heart. That worldly lifestyle was characterized by deceitful desires, desires that lie to us. That's the opposite of life in Christ because the truth is in Jesus. Jesus shows us true reality. We saw that in verses 20 through 24. And so because he's truth and because we're to put away this old lifestyle, we have to put away falsehood. Lying. But it's not enough to simply avoid lying. Look further in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So in Scripture, when God gives us a, a prohibition, a negative command, he doesn't just give us a negative command. The negative command is there to teach us about something valuable. I loved this week, I was reading a, a, a book and the author said it this way, a prohibition actually provides freedom and encouragement to pursue something precious. So in the Ten Commandments, when God says don't murder, he's actually saying, I value life and I want you to value life too. And here, when he says, don't be characterized by falsehood, by lies, and by deceit, what he's saying is, I value the truth. And you and your life with one another should value the truth as well. New life in Christ means we value the truth and we seek to be people who speak the truth to one another. This is a new habit for us. We deal with one another honestly in a straightforward manner. And what's interesting here in verse 25 is this command is actually taken from the Old Testament. And it's taken from Zechariah 8 and verse 16. Now, why is that significant that it's taken from Zechariah 8 and verse 16? Well, in that passage, God is telling Israel, I'm going to bring you out of exile, put you in the land, and I'm going to create a new community and I'm going to start doing good to you as a people. And the very first command he gives them is he says, look, when I do good to you, this is what your community will look like. It will be a community that is flourishing and is doing well and you're relating to each other well because you speak the truth to one another. And Paul sees the church as the fulfillment of this expectation, of this hope for the future. And that's why he quotes this. Here in this passage, 
I'll read it to you. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do, right? So when God does good to them, here's what will characterize them. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. When God does good to them, their community will be filled with truth and they'll deal honestly with one another. Why must we be people who speak the truth? Why? What's the motivation for this? Why should we want to deal honestly with one another? Look at verse 25. For we are members one of another. Here's the theological reality. We deal truthfully with one another because we're all a part of the same body. And this is what you have to renew your mind with. We have to come to the point where we actually think and understand and believe that we're all on the same team, that we're all a part of the same body. This has been expressed over and over again in Ephesians. Ephesians 3 and verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. We're all members of one another, and so we're responsible for one another. We're accountable to one another. So we speak the truth to one another. There was an early church pastor named Chrysostom who was quite the preacher, and this is what he said about this command to speak the truth. If the eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? Or if the nose smells a deadly drug, will it lie to the mouth? Or if the tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to the stomach? I mean, it's kind of hilarious to think through that possibility, but that's what often happens in the body of Christ. We lie to one another. And this reality that we're part of the same body is what we have to renew our minds with so that we'll be people who value the truth among each other. We're responsible for one another. An eye that sees a harmful serpent and doesn't inform the foot is not functioning as an eye should function within the body. We're all members of the same body growing together to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first area that Paul addresses here. Second, verses 26 and 27. Let me read those to you. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's very, very common just amongst human beings, but certainly amongst members of a church to deal with one another in anger and frustration. And that destroys the unity of the church, right? We're all the same body, but often we deal with one another in anger and frustration. And Paul here states this in a fascinating way, right? He actually commands us to be angry, but then he, he sort of adjusts that command and caveats it a little bit and says, but do not sin. 
Now, all anger is not sinful anger, right? I mean, that's the, the thing you understand when you see this command here. It's not necessarily sinful to be angry. There are some things that you and I should be angry about, and if you're never angry about anything, then you're not biblical. And so there are times and there are places and there are reasons to be angry. But I think what Paul recognizes here is that it's very difficult for you and I to distinguish between righteous indignation and just sinful anger. It's very, very difficult for us to distinguish between those two. And I would say even our righteous indignation is many times tainted by just plain frustration and sinful anger and annoyance. And so when we're angry, each one of us tends to think, well, I have every right to be mad. I am fully justified in this frustration. And so we tend to view our own anger as perfectly justifiable, but his anger is just him having a bad temper. His is sinful anger. And so Paul doesn't deny here that righteous anger is possible. In fact, he tells you, be angry. There are some things you should be upset about. But you have to be incredibly careful with your anger. When you feel and when you recognize anger in your heart, you have to be careful. And you can't let that anger boil over into sinful actions. In fact, if you believe, if you honestly believe that you have every right to be angry over this situation, over what has happened... Paul says you can't let that anger linger. You have to deal with it. If you're frustrated with another believer in the body, you have to go and pursue reconciliation with that person. That's exactly why he says here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You have to pursue reconciliation as quickly as you can when it comes to anger, even before the day ends. There's another passage in the New Testament that makes this very clear to us. It's very similar to Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to turn over there. I'll put it on the screen. But we, we often focus on the first two verses of this, right, where it compares anger to murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so we often we'll stop there, and we'll talk about how anger at another person, another believer, is like murder. And if, if it were to go unrestrained, it would result in murder, ultimately. And I mean, obviously, that's right. That's what Jesus is saying here. But typically, we stop there. But Jesus goes on, and he tells us what to do about it. If you're angry, don't just let it linger. Don't just let it sit there. This is actually, the next part I'm going to show you is where the command in this comes in. Here's the instruction on how to live, verses 23 to 26. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. 
And he continues on there. The point is this, you have to deal with anger by pursuing reconciliation as quickly as possible. When the Bible teaches us how to deal with anger, it says you have to do it quickly, you have to do it with great passion. This is the urgent matter. Pursue reconciliation. Why? Back in Ephesians 4, verse 27. Here's the the basis for this. And give no opportunity to the devil. The devil is a slanderer, right? He's a liar. The father of lies. He tells lies every single time. And so if we let anger linger and persist and we cultivate it in our hearts and don't pursue reconciliation and let it fester and we're frustrated with someone else, we are allowing the slanderer to get a foothold in our hearts. And he's a slanderer, and when he gets that foothold, what's he going to do? He's going to turn our thinking away from the truth, and we're going to stop seeing the situation correctly. And even though our anger is not righteous indignation, we're going to start to think it is. And we're going to start to think he's the problem. I'm perfectly justifiable in this. And if we let anger linger, we won't think straight anymore. It'll be turned to lies and deceit. And the longer we let it linger, the bigger the opportunity is for the devil and his lies to do its work in us and to encourage deceitful thinking and justification for our wrong and falsehoods. And that destroys the body of Christ when that happens. And so new life in Christ values the truth and new life in Christ is angry over the right things, but it's so careful that we automatically pursue reconciliation so that the slanderous one does not get a foothold in our thinking and in our hearts. The third area is in verse 28. Third practical area here. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, this would have been pretty significant for people at this church in Ephesus, because Probably some of them were day laborers, and so they weren't particularly well off financially. And when winter time came, the workflow would stop. And so they would go out each day to work for a day and earn a day's wage to feed their families and provide. And then when winter time would come, they didn't have those opportunities anymore. And so it was very common for those people to steal in order to support their families and to make a living. They would resort to thievery. And Paul says, listen, when you have new life in Christ, you break with that old pattern of living. And this would have been very dramatic for some of these believers to break with that old way of living. No longer do I take what I have not earned. Instead, I put off that old way of living. What's the new way? I put on a lifestyle that values work and values labor, and values labor to the point of exhaustion. That's the word that's used here. Completely spent at the end of the day, completely exhausted. And I do my work honestly 
and justly in order to earn my paycheck. Now, he says working with your hands here, it doesn't necessarily have to be manual labor where you're actually building or constructing something with your hands, although that's a, a great way to work. But the point is the hands that were used for theft are now used for another purpose. And that, that's the way we renew our minds. It's that new purpose of work. Look at the end of verse 28. So that, here's the the renewal of your mind part, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is one of the purposes of work. This is how we have to start thinking about work so that our minds are renewed. You may have not ever been a thief this morning, never taken anything that is not yours. And I honestly doubt that we have many thieves among us this morning, although we can be tempted to steal in a number of ways, Intellectual theft, cheating on your taxes, to name a couple. There's lots of ways we can steal, but regardless, even if you aren't a thief this morning, it's very easy for us to view our work as something we do for ourselves only. Something we do to pursue self-indulgence, right? I work for me, so I can buy what I want, and I can do what I want with my money. That's why I work. And that's the sum total of how I view my job. But Paul says that new life in Christ brings an entirely new perspective on work. Certainly you work to provide for your family. That's true. To provide for the basic necessities and what you need and to enjoy God's good gifts of creation. But here he says, when you think about work, renew your minds and think, I'm working so that I can benefit other people. I'm doing my job both in my work and with the resulting money that I get so that I can share with those who are in need so that other people can benefit from the work that I'm doing and the money that results from the work that I'm doing. That's a new perspective. The fourth area that he deals with is in verses 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Displace the old habits and put on new habits through the renewing of your mind. So he's already talked about our speech in verse 25, we're to be people of the truth. We don't deal in dishonesty anymore. We deal truthfully with others and we value the truth. But now he's talking about speech that is harmful. At the beginning of verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This is, corruption gives us the picture in scripture of decaying fruit or decaying fish. If you were to eat the fruit or eat the fish, it would be harmful to you. It would make you sick. It wouldn't do you well to eat this. And our words have the power to do great good to people, but man, they have the power to do harm to people. I've always loved this verse from Proverbs talking about our words. My youth pastor used to harp on this all the time. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Man, 
You hold in your mouth the power of life for other people, and you hold in your mouth the power of death in someone else's life. You can harm them with your words in ways that you probably can't even imagine. What does harmful speech look like? Corrupt speech. There's a lot of things that fit into this category. Abusive language, mockery, slander, vulgar speech, a harsh tone, belittling words, sarcasm, talking to myself here, contempt for others. The list could go on and on. There is no place in the life of a believer for this sort of corrupting, harmful language. Instead, we talk in a different way, right? There's a new type of speech that characterizes us. And this new speech fits three criteria. Do you want to know how to evaluate your speech to others? Boom, right here. Three criteria for everything you and I say, right? But, verse 29, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. First of all, our speech as those who have been called out of darkness and into light must be good, beneficial for building up. What does it mean to build someone up? It means to strengthen that person for the task at hand. To give them the resources that they need to accomplish what God has called them to do, to make that person more able. And words certainly have the power to do that. Does your speech make those around you more able to accomplish what God has called them to do? Or do your words make them less able? Tear them down, hinder them from accomplishing what God has called them to do. Are your words harmful to them or good for building up. Second, another criteria, another filter for our speech, the words must fit the occasion. This is interesting. Our speech has to be sensitive to the need of the moment, right? You don't just have all these canned phrases that you throw out there for people. Hashtag be brave. Oh, you're built up, right? (laughs) That's not what we're talking about here. It's sensitive to the need of the moment, to the occasion. And what this means for you and I is, is that in order to be sensitive to the need of the occasion, we have to be sensitive to the needs of the person in front of us. We have to be aware of what they're going through, of what their life is like. We have to be concerned for them. We have to not talk about ourselves all the time, but look out to the other person and be interested in them. You have to be aware and alert of their life situation so that you can speak a word that is timely and is appropriate and fits the occasion. Third, Verse 29, the last phrase, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our speech is supposed to minister grace to other people. Our words must contribute to the growth in grace of one another. 
I mean, that's the goal, right? We're all to grow together to look like Christ. Well, our words must contribute to that growth so that they are built up in grace and they know grace better. They understand more and more what God has done for them. And so if we were to sort of build these filters into our lives, this would be great criteria to filter out corrupt speech, harmful speech. Does what I'm about to say build up? Does what I'm about to say, is it appropriate for the need of the moment for the other person? Will what I'm about to say contribute to their spiritual well-being, their spiritual growth? What motivates this type of speech? Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When believers verbally harm one another and cut one another down and mock one another and make fun of one another and use vulgar speech with one another, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And keep in mind, the Holy Spirit is the bond of peace between us. Ephesians 4 and verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit is what brings us together. And as the Spirit brings us together and lives in us and works in us, verse 30 here says that we were sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the the guarantee, the engagement ring, the down payment, that this is going to happen. You have the Spirit, and that guarantees that you will be brought to the end of your life and brought to the day of redemption as one of God's children. And he will ensure that. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us, and he grows us, and he builds unity among us. And so when you and I spew out harmful speech, it corrupts that unity, and it grieves, it saddens the Holy Spirit who is given to us to confirm our redemption and to help us to look forward to our redemption. It pains him. And so grieving the Holy Spirit is not something to take lightly or to take casually. Lastly, the last aspect of this new life in Christ, this walk of holiness, the last example that Paul gives us is in verses 31 and 32. Fifth area of practical practical change here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I think this was one of the first verses that I memorized as a small child. Ephesians 4.32. Makes it very clear here. There are ways of dealing with one another in anger and slander and malice that we have to put away. We have to eliminate from our relationships with one another. And instead, we are to put on the attitudes and the demeanor of verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. It's interesting that he uses the word kind there because there's a really big push in our culture today to be kind to one another. I mean, you can buy t-shirts that say be kind on them. 
probably hashtag be kind. You can buy bumper stickers that say, wag more, bark less. I like that one personally. I think it's very good. Everybody's telling us to be kind, from Ellen DeGeneres to the Dalai Lama. I don't watch the Golden Globes, but I read this week that at the Golden Globes, Brad Pitt won an award, and when he was getting ready to walk off the stage after he gave his speech, he said this, hey, if you see a chance to be kind to someone tomorrow, take it. I think we need it. And so we got everybody in the world telling us to be kind. Even our celebrity overlords are encouraging us to be kind to one another. So why can't we all just be kind to one another? Why doesn't it work? Why can't we be nice to one another? Well, those encouragements to be kind to one another are lacking in a very straightforward motivation that builds us up as Christians and gives us the power to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, and to be forgiving to one another. What is that motivation? Look at the end of verse 32. This is what we renew our minds with. As God in Christ forgave you. There's nothing that will renew my sinful tendency to be angry and malicious with others that's available in the broader culture. You can tell everyone to be kind all you want, but the resources just aren't there to do it consistently. Occasionally, maybe even regularly, but not consistently. But Christianity has a foundation and a basis for this. What will change you and I to be kind and compassionate people? It's to renew our minds with what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. When I come face to face with the depths of my sin and I see how wicked I am and how distorted my desires are, my actions, my motivations, and then I see that God in his love and care sent the Lord Jesus Christ and offers full and complete forgiveness to me and all my sins are done away with and I renew my mind with that truth and think about that truth and dwell there, then it is so much easier and more natural to be kind and to have a disposition of grace toward one another. Mind renewal happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our book of the month this month is called A Gospel Primer. And I love this book. I've used it for years and years. And it addresses this very connection between kindness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of his forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give this same grace to those who have wronged me. Yes, that's exactly right. As God in Christ forgave you, and this is really the foundation for all of the mind renewal 
that needs to happen here. My desires change through the forgiving grace of God demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of a walk in holiness. I mean, this is really where it starts. It starts with understanding forgiveness from God through Christ to me. So I would encourage you this week, rejoice in that truth, pray through that truth, and let it change your thinking and your desires and your motivations, and it will change the way you act and deal with one another and walk in holiness. Let's pray. Father, we're so needy this morning. We need your word. We need your truth. We need the gospel. We need forgiveness, and it is all available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you that all your fullness is present in him, and we have access to you through him. I pray that you would work these truths out in our lives. Help us not just to hear these things and then to go on our way, but help these these gospel seeds to sink down into the soil of our hearts and lives and to sprout and to produce good fruit in us, Lord. We expect that to happen as we submit ourselves to you. And we love you for the work that you're going to do in Christ's name.